All right, let's get our Bibles. Have you got your Bibles, your technology, or whatever it is you're using? Get your Bibles out, and as you're getting your Bible out, I want everyone to say these words. Say, I love my Bible. Do you really love your Bible? I love my Bible. And whether your Bible now is on your iPad or your phone or, you know, if you're old school and you still got your leather Bible, which I'm still using my old school Bible. I got a nice large print Bible. The reason I went to technology was I could get the print size I needed for these eyes that are getting weary. Um, But uh, whatever type Bible you use, the key is to use it and to read it. And uh, we're going to be talking in these next few weeks about loving our Bible. In fact, this whole year in 2017, we're going to be having all sorts of topics. And all these topics will start out with, I love. I love perhaps my spouse. I love my church. I love what does, whatever God loves. I love the Lord. I love his presence. And so this whole year, we're going to just explore what God loves and how we're to love what he loves. How many of you know that he loves his word? He gave us his word. And we should love that as well. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible and get started right for 2017. And I decided to do part of the service today like our Catholic friends did for centuries. I'm going to give, I know I see the eyelids going up. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to give the title of the message today a Latin title. Your IQs are going to go up exponentially just because of the title in Latin. And uh, I'll give you the backstory to all of this. I was going through school, and I was going through the seminary, and the seminary that I went to was not super conservative. It wasn't exactly liberal either. It was sort of what you'd call a moderate seminary. But there was a great debate that was raging. This is back in the mid-1980s. Those of you that are old enough probably were not even aware this was raging at the time. But there was this debate, debate, a great debate that was raging over the inspiration of the Bible and how the Bible was inspired or whether it was inspired at all. And there was this guy, he wrote a book, his name was Harold Lincell, and and it became a very controversial book. It doesn't sound like it, it may not be of interest, but in that particular time period, it was very controversial. It was called The Battle for the Bible. And in this book, as a professor at a graduate school, he was a conservative guy, he began to outline different seminaries, different denominational seminaries, uh, different schools that were undermining the churches they served by pumping out pastors who did not believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. And, and it, why it was an interesting book was because he named names. Whenever you can get a book that named names, that's the best kind of book, man. That's almost like National Enquirer. And he named names. And uh, it exposed all the people that were teaching these sorts of things. And the controversy reached the school that I was attending, and it caused no small ripple as we discussed in all sorts of classes all the ramifications of what uh, inspiration meant when it came to the Holy Scriptures. And I was reading through one of Wesley's journals, and I came across this quotation from Wesley himself with regards to inspiration. And this is what Wesley said. I'm just going to read this to you. He writes, To candid, reasonable men, I'm not afraid to lay open what have been the inmost thoughts of my heart. I have thought, 
I am a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. Isn't that a cool way to describe your life? You're passing through like an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. Just hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, he writes, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Wesley writes, oh, give me that book at any price. Give me that book, the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be. And then he speaks in Latin, homo unius libra. And what that means is let me be a man of one book, a man of one book. And so the message title I just put up homo unius libra. So you can write that down. You've got a little Latin under your belt. But what it really means is this. Are we really a people of one book? Are we really a people of one book? We're going to explore that. And if you have that book, open it up to 2 Timothy 3. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. If you found it, say, I got it. And I love my Bible. Okay, 2 Timothy. Paul writes, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Listen now, all scripture, everyone say all scripture, not some, not most, not many. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God will make it gender neutral here for our purposes may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are you a person of one book? How many of you have ever heard the name of Vince Lombardi? Is that a, okay, some of you have heard the name. Vince Lombardi was an NFL football coach. He coached way back in the dark ages, the late 50s, a little into the early 60s. He coached the Green Bay Packers, he was a, an incredibly famous coach. He was the first coach to ever win the Super Bowl, and actually the Super Bowl trophy is named after Vince Lombardi. It's called the Lombardi Trophy. Uh, Vince Lombardi had a number of famous sayings. He was known as a rather gruff and rough coach or man and a, a tough coach, but he had, he had many winning ball teams. And there's a famous Vince Lombardi quote, the, the team, the Packers, had just lost a ball game. He was upset with the football team, even as good as they were, and, and they were a great football team. Paul Horning, a Bart Starr, you may not know these names, Jerry Kramer, Fuzzy uh, Thurston. Uh, all of these were great names of great football players that played on a world champion Green Bay Packer team, but they had lost a ball game they should not have lost, and Lombardi was mad. 
and he gets him in the locker room and he looks at him and he says, gentlemen, we're going to go back to the basics. And he picks up a football and he says, this is a football. That's what it means to go back to the basics. This is a football. And today I want to pick up a Bible and simply say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a Bible. It's a Bible. It doesn't get any more basic than that. And Paul's writing to Timothy and really doesn't say anything that most of us wouldn't expect. He says to Timothy, he says to continue all that you have learned knowing where you've learned it from. Now that's pretty basic, isn't it? The scriptures, he says. In fact, in all likelihood, he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures at the time because Obviously, Paul's letters hadn't been codified into New Testament writing. So when he says, hear me, Timothy, to, to listen to the Scripture, he's basically talking about the Old Testament Scripture. Paul knew, and Timothy, of course, grew up in it, that he had two wonderful women in his life, uh, his grandmother and his mother, who were godly women that had trained him well, teaching him the Scriptures from a very early age. And so he's looking at Timothy and he says, remember, remember what you've learned, continue to do what you have learned, you've been taught well. And before I even get into what I want to really share, it led me to begin to think about the question really to parents, and now I'm a grandparent, and that is, are you teaching your kids or your grandkids to be a a person of one book? Who's teaching them to be the person of that one book? Are you teaching them the scriptures? Are you asking your children to memorize passages from the Bible? We used to make our kids memorize verses from the Bible. One of them was 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. All of my children to this day know 1 Corinthians 15, 33. We made them quote that and memorize that, along with many other scriptures as well. Because I just want to ask you, because they've memorized all the popular songs that are played on radios. They've memorized movie uh, you know, movie conversations and dialogue. They've memorized all of these things. They've memorized the cartoons they watch. They've memorized everything. My question for us today is, are they memorizing the Scripture? Are they becoming people of the book? Do they know the Scripture? Are you helping them to know the Scripture? Many of you may know that this past week I was getting Tyler moved in to his uh, new apartment down in Jacksonville. He's got his job all set up. He just graduated from college, and uh, it's been interesting listening to both he and Kaylin. They've attended the same same college. It's a Christian school. Most of the kids come from Christian families. There are other kids that are there that may not have had Christian upbringing, but by and large, the vast majority are Christian kids. At least they had to give a testimony to that fact in order to get enrolled in the school. But it was interesting to me to listen to both of them tell me the stories as to how they would go through their intro to New Testament class or their intro to Old Testament class. And the professors would ask them just really simple questions that one would thought they would have learned along the way, maybe in Sunday school, something in the Bible. And of course, these intro classes have 50 or more students in them, many who grew up in Christian households, some who grew up in pastor's homes. And it was interesting, Tyler would say, you cannot believe, Dad, the questions that would be asked, simple questions about the Bible, and Kaylin and I would be the only ones that would have our hands up in the class. At a Christian 
college. Now, what does that say about the future leaders in Christianity, no matter what field they go into? Are we people of the book? And the most telling point is that their lack of biblical understanding is now being translated into their dysfunction of lifestyle. We have a generation that's dysfunctional because they no longer are moored to the book. As millennials are growing up and starting to work and to vote and to participate in society, we are experiencing the repercussions. There's a, there's a, a Facebook video that's running around concerning how millennials think and what they do, especially with technology. It's interesting. If you've not seen it, I'd encourage you to watch it. It's interesting to kind of get a hold of sort of what the millennial generation thinks and how they function uh, because they've been moored to technology rather than being moored to precept. In fact, you'd be astonished at the number of Christian kids who supported the policies of Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. You'd be amazed at Christian colleges how many kids were wearing the t-shirts, feel the burn. Amazing to me at the biblical disconnect of this whole election, not even to bring in a defense of our now president-elect Donald Trump. Now, I'm not going to resurrect all the animosities of this last election cycle. My point is simply to illustrate that our biblical illiteracy is coming home to roost. And the only way any of this changes is when parents and grandparents take seriously the admonition to be a person of the book, to teach our children to be people of the book. Do you ask them to memorize anything? Oh, God forbid. They'll memorize everything in school, but you won't make them memorize a scripture. I don't understand that. I can't change it. Nobody listens to me anyway a lot of times, so you'll live with those repercussions as we're seeing. Do you meditate on it? Do you help your, your kids begin to assimilate this into their life? Do they read something and then do you talk to them about how that gets applied in their life? I mean, there are Christian people right now who will know everybody who's up for an Oscar or a Grammy, but they can't quote one Bible verse. Does that bother anybody? I hope so. Because I'm not here to pound you about it. I'm simply here to say to you that we're coming into a moment that you knowing the Grammy list or the Oscar list isn't going to press through to your destiny. So what do we intend on doing about that? What are you going to do about it? It's a brand new year. Going to church is a great start. But one hour a week isn't going to fix what's going on. So I want to talk to you about the Bible, the Word of God. It's important. It's something God gave each one of us. In fact, we're all Protestants here, I think. <laughs> maybe, maybe I have a Catholic friend in here. But the point being is, is that we believe we can access God on our own and we can access His Word. You don't have to have me to access His Word. Hopefully, I help you understand His Word, but you don't need me to access His Word. So we've got to begin to understand the Bible, the place of the Bible. And there are three important features of the Bible that I just want to talk about briefly here this afternoon. The first thing I want you to know is this. Number one is it is unique. It's unique. There's no other book like the Bible. And there are all sorts of various aspects that make it unique. Let me just share some things with you. Just bear with me for a moment. It was written by over 40 writers. The Bible is actually a compilation of books. 
uh, most of these writers had no contact with each other. Uh, some were contemporaries of each other, but most of them had no contact with each other. And yet, is it not interesting, the seamless connection and the message of redemption is beyond coincidental. These people who never ran into each other are speaking the same thing. That's unique, I think. The hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah that have consequently been fulfilled in Jesus Christ is statistically astronomical. Now, the Bible has been criticized, it's been sliced, it's been diced, it's been ridiculed and dismissed, but literally after thousands of years of some form of existence, the Bible is still the number one seller in the earth. Do you realize they don't even, if, if you force the New York Times, the Bible would be the number one selling book on the New York Times bestselling list every time it came out. But they just don't even put it on there. But that's true. Why is that? It's because it's unique. And Paul tells us it's unique by telling us the reason. He says the reason it's unique is it is inspired. It is inspired. Now the word inspiration is another one of those words that have to be defined because people say, you know, Shakespeare was inspired. You know, I've read Shakespeare. I have not found that to be true. Uh, because it's just, it, it, he, he supposedly wrote in English, and I'm, to me it was never English. People said Dickens was inspired. People have said George Lucas and Star Wars is inspired. Politicians have spoken, and people walk away and say, wasn't that inspired? Other books have been said to be inspirational. So what does it mean to be inspired? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses is the word theonoustos. It's on the screen above. See, now you know a little Latin and a little Greek. Theonoustos, it literally means God breathed. God blew. God breathed these words out. So all scripture, Paul writes to Timothy, is God breathed. The Holy Scripture comes from God. We recognize that. We recognize the divine uniqueness of scripture. The early church began to recognize the inspiration of Scripture. Now, it wasn't until about A.D. 393 or 397 and a couple different councils that church officials began to sort out the inspired documents and those that perhaps were not inspired, and they began to establish what we have today. We call it the Bible. It's called the canon of Scripture. But they began to recognize it. Now, hear me. The church did not choose what was Scripture. They recognized what was Scripture. There's a big difference. The church didn't invent the Bible. It didn't invent the canon any more than Newton invented the law of gravity. How many of you know gravity existed before Newton got hit on the head with an apple? Newton merely recognized the existence of gravity. God had already placed gravity in effect. And so it was with the Scripture. The Scripture existed. The church didn't invent it. They recognized it. They recognized those documents. And though there was some time before the official church laid down the label on it all, it was eminently clear to the early church what was the Word of God and what was not the Word of God. And there are all kinds of erroneous books that have been left out for various reasons. And I'm not going to take you through the boring sort of detailed analysis if you if you like that stuff hey google it it's all out there 
But there was a process that all went through as to why this was recognized and this wasn't recognized. But the bottom line was, when it came down to codify the Bible, it became apparent that these books God himself had authored. Now the question becomes, if God authored it, well then how did it come to us? I mean, did like these books just float down from the sky one day? And they just kind of landed there and we picked it up and said, oh, God sent us a note. No, not exactly. The Bible tells us how it happened. Second Peter 1.21, we read, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that's the definition of inspiration. And I, I put this down. God so influenced select men by his spirit that it produced an infallible communication of God's mind and will. In other words, what they said, God said. Are you following me? Now, as a footnote, this is interesting to me. The Bible does not say exactly that the writers were inspired. Paul doesn't say that exactly. Peter does not say that exactly. What they say is that the inspiration is the scripture. God breathed the scripture. The men themselves were not inspired in the sense that they had this ability to do this all of the time. I'm quite sure Paul wrote letters to people that did not become scripture. Why? Because they were not inspired words. Paul was not inspired all the time so that everything he wrote became scripture. There were those moments that God breathed on those words that he was writing that they became the scripture. The rest of the time, they spoke independent of that inspiration. So the Bible knows nothing technically of inspired men, only of inspired words, of God-breathed words. There were special moments in the lives of these, these men when they were given directly from God his word to write. And the rest of the time, they wrote what was on their own, and it was their own. So men were not inspired, Scripture is. God breathed into them, and they wrote it, I believe, word by word. God breathed into them. And it was more than dictation. They weren't just listening to some voice and writing, you know, kind of mechanically every word. It was flowing through their minds and their hearts and their soul and their emotions and their experiences and their personality. It's really interesting, if you could read the original Greek, because I, I, I've maintained that through the years. I've kept my fluency up. You can read, for instance, Mark or Peter, and you can see that these men were fishermen just by their vocabulary. They aren't technically hard books to read once you know the language. But then you get to Luke or you get to Paul's epistles, and you can see that these men, Luke was a doctor. Paul was schooled in the best rabbinical schools of his day, and you have to get out your worksheets, and you have to you know, decline the sentence in order to begin to translate it because it's a different level of vocabulary. And what that shows us is that God can use fishermen, and he can use doctors, and he can even use pastors. And you can see it in the language. Now, Peter's vocabulary was different than Paul's vocabulary, but the fact of the matter is, that vocabulary was God breathed. It came through them. It's kind of curious to me that, uh, that the people that wrote the Bible had a strange air of infallibility. In fact, it's interesting because some of them actually wrote in the Bible 
saying that they were writing for God. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought about that? That you're writing something down and you're saying, I'm writing this for God. (laughs) They they weren't self-conscious about it. I mean, you basically look at the Bible, and for the most part, they were unlearned, common people, a few exceptions. Yet they're supremely confident of the fact that they're writing the Word of God. In fact, about 4,000 times in the Bible, the writers claim to be writing the Word of God, and they're never self-conscious about it. I mean, you'd think that somewhere along the way they would say, well, this is the Word of God. Now, I know you're probably going to find this hard to believe, that I'm giving you the exact word of God. But you've got to understand, it's really true. If you were in my shoes right now, you would know what I am talking about. I mean, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. This is the word of God. I'm not yanking you. This is really true. But there's none of that. There's none of this, you know, defensiveness. I don't know why you ought to believe this, but I'm telling you this is really the Lord. He told me to tell you this. There's none of that. There's no sense of self-justification, no self-defense. Even though most of them had no extensive education, they were in no earthly position to be in the role of a literary genius. They wrote this profound, far-reaching, supernatural wisdom. They wrote prophecies of the future, things to come to pass that were absolutely accurate, and they never once were defensive about it. That's just remarkable to me. Now, the question often arises as to which translation should we use. I'll be honest with you, as your pastor, I don't get worked up as some do on that question. There are some people get really worked up on translations. Now, I'm not saying it's not an important consideration, but I've pretty much reached the place in our current culture that to read any version is better than to read no version. There are some that believe the King James Version. In fact, it has to be the 1611 version. It's the only version you can use. Uh, I know there's a discussion about the different manuscripts that were used for the translation purposes, and I just, I even, I, I hear it and I blur. And, and the King James Version is a good version. I, I'm the first to say it's an accurate and reliable version, but... I want you all to know God didn't use English in order to reveal his purposes. He used Hebrew and Greek. And one of those words uh, says sentences to us. In other words, if, if, if I give you a Greek word, like agape, if I just, everybody knows agape means love. Well, that's how we translate it word for word. But, but you know that agape means something far greater than just love. It's, it's, it's. It's self-sacrificing love. It's love that creates value in that which it is pointed to. I mean, to understand agape, you have to use about a paragraph in English in order to understand agape. And so while we translate word for word, you have to understand that God used a particular language and particular words by which to communicate sometimes a fullness of thought. Now, I personally like versions, if people have asked me. I like the New King James Version. That's the one I use. I like that because it is an attempt at a word-for-word translation. Some people like the New American Standard Bible. The New American Standard Bible is another word-for-word translation. 
People have asked me about the New International Version. Now, I'm not picking on the New International Version except to say to you that the philosophy in that translation committee was not to translate word for word, but they translated thought for thought. And there's a difference. In other words, they tried to read the sentence and they understood that the words communicate far more than just just wooden word for word. And so they tried, they tried to translate in a way that they could take the thought of the sentence or the thought of the scripture and, and, and provide a more fuller understanding for those that would read it. Now, again, I'm not picking on it, but it is a different way to translate it. And so when you're, when you're picking out your translations, just keep in mind that some translations you'll know word for word for word and you can read the forewords of those translations and you can see how they decided to go after it or it's thought for thought. Uh, I like the word for word because that's my view of inspiration, that God inspired words, words are important and I want to know the word uh, that it is translated for and I can do my study later. But uh, it is inspired. Now, it's not only inspired, but next it has authority. The scripture has authority. We're going to get into this later. But the Old Testament and the New Testament has authority as scripture in a Christian's life. Now, we're going we're, we're gonna to open that can up later. Um, but I'm here to tell you that the Old Testament is still good for today, too. If God really breathed these words out, then it becomes the revelation we need to know definitively his mind on the matter. And a lot of things in the New Testament you will not find. The reason you cannot find them there is because you've heard me say we didn't switch gods at the cross. And so what God said in the Old Covenant still is maintained under a New Covenant because it's still God's Word. Now again, there's a lot to explore there, but we'll just leave it at this point today and that is your old testament is still for you too remember what paul said to timothy didn't even have a new testament then he said all scripture is inspired primarily meaning the old testament some people tend to undermine the bible by reminding us that some of it was transmitted by oral transmission you know for years the scriptures you know they didn't have printing presses we didn't even have a printing press till the late 1400s so how was scripture transmitted for those early centuries? Well, you know what they did? They, they transmitted it orally. And so the question becomes, how can you translate something orally and for it to be credible? Because if I were to go over here to Bill and to whisper a sentence in Bill's ear and then say, Bill, you repeat exactly what I just said to you to Andrea, and you do that to Andrea, and then Andrea walks over here and looks at Caleb and whispers in Caleb's ear, and then Caleb gives it to Rachel, and then Rachel whispers it to Robert, and then Robert comes up and tells me what it is I originally said to Bill. How many of you know? Have you ever played that game? And you don't have anything near, nothing near what got started. We all know that. And so that's why there are many who say, you can't trust the Bible because for centuries it was orally transmitted. You know what's interesting is that God not only inspired the Bible, but God oversaw the transmission of the Bible. One of the most interesting stories was in 1946 in the Middle East, out in the Qumran Caves, there was a, in fact, I actually think it was a Muslim, Bedouin, was throwing rocks as he's watching sheep. And he throws a rock into a cave, into one of the Qumran Caves. And he hears this crash. And he walks into the cave. And as he walks into the cave, he sees all of these these ceramic type vases in the cave with scrolls 
in all of these vases. From what I understand, there was almost a thousand different scrolls in these caves. He didn't know what he'd found. He pulled one out, looks at it, doesn't even know what he's found. He takes it back to his camp. And for several weeks, they just hung it up over the tent, not knowing what to do with it, until finally they walk it into town and he he found somebody who might be interested in it and they were only going to pay him less than a dollar for the parchment. Wondered where he got it. And so anyway, through all of this happening, they found out that what he actually had gotten a hold of were writings from a group called the Essenes who had stored them in these caves. These caves were dry. It was a unique place for them to be stored. It preserved those parchments. Amazing. And, and, and they, were, they were certain books that the Essenes had written. But more importantly than that, they were actually parchments of most of the Old Testament books that we have today. And most of those parchments were somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years older than the best manuscripts we had up to that point. So imagine the best ancient manuscript you had, let's say, I don't know, let's just say was uh, AD, AD 200. So you're 200 years after the death of Christ. Let's say that's the best manuscript you've got. And all of a sudden you've got another manuscript that's 800 B.C. Now, you don't have to be an archaeologist to know this principle. Older is better because it's closer. Are you following me? That's an archaeological principle. The closer I get to the actual event, if I can get something closer to it, I probably have something more accurate. So you've got certain parchments that are 1,000 years older than whatever you had in your hands prior to that. And hear me when I tell you this. They were going through the scroll of Isaiah. And as they went through the the scroll of Isaiah and they compared it to the copies that they had uh, originally, now comparing it with these older copies, they went through and they said the degree of accuracy, listen to this, was over 98% accuracy. Now you say, well, shouldn't it be like 100? Well, it probably ought ought to be. But let me hear you, the only discrepancies in the text had nothing to do with doctrine it had nothing to do with major words or vocabulary it had everything to do most of the time with definite articles whether it was an uh or the that were that was about the only mistakes that could be found on those parchments i'm here to tell you if we couldn't take a sentence down the pew with five people how in the world could you keep parchments that accurate for a thousand years God. That's the only explanation to it. In, in fact, it undermined every everybody that was trying to dismiss the supernatural nature of the scriptures. It became one of the greatest archaeological finds in the 20th century. Now let's contrast that to the Quran. The Quran actually was written hundreds and hundreds of years later, somewhere in the area probably of 600 AD, somewhere in that area. And it actually has morphed through the centuries. There are, there are various copies of the Quran, and they don't agree with each other. In fact, there are 20, no one tells you this, there are 20 different Korans today. 20 different ones. Written by one guy who was a serial adulterer and a pedophile. So if anyone tells you that your book is the same as everyone else's book, no way. It, it's, not, it, it's nowhere near the same. It is unique. Now the second thing is, and we're going to move quickly now, the Bible is universal. 
it's universal. You've heard me say on occasion that the Bible is comprehensive in its scope. I say things like that because you need to understand that the Bible touches every area of our life. It is universal. Obamacare is not the only thing that's universal. The Bible is universal. It touches every area of life. Now, why is that important? Because great numbers of your Christian friends and neighbors believe that the Bible's inspiration is limited to only certain matters. Most often they will say the Bible is infallible with all things pertaining to faith and practice. In other words, most people, most Christians will concede the fact that the Bible will get you the message on how to get to heaven without any error. But after that, the Bible may not be errorless. In fact, they play word games. It's infallible, they'll say, with regards to faith and practice, which means that the Bible is errorless with regards to salvation, but not necessarily your marriage or public policy or abortion policy or science or math or anything else outside of religious concerns. Sure, that's exactly what they believe. They, 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 they don't believe the Bible touches anything but except how to get to heaven. And I'm here to tell you, it most certainly tells you how to get to heaven. And whatever it touches, it has authority. The Bible is your owner's manual. If you want to know how humanity was meant to work, if how you were meant to work, how your marriage was meant to work, how your family was meant to work, how your community was meant to work, how your nation was meant to work, It's the owner's manual. God gave us an owner's manual. And the reason we're not working very well in our society is because we refuse to read the owner's manual. I I do this. Now, some of you guys, I know, I know, I know Robert and and I, and I know Andrew and some others are mechanics. So you, you, you're, you're in a different league. You may be an exception to what I'm about ready to say with regards to cars. But I buy a car and I never read the owner's manual. I mean, the only time I read the owner's manual is when I'm frustrated with something. Like a light comes on and I can't figure out the light or I'm trying to figure out how to get something off and get inside. That's the only time I'll read an owner's manual. In fact, I was reading one the other day. I was trying to sync my phone. I got a, I got a new phone. I was trying to sync into the thing and I couldn't get it synced in right. And I, you know, and I tried. I sat there for almost an hour trying to sync the phone. And so, well, what did you do? Well, I finally went and said, oh, I guess I have to read the owner's manual. It's just, that, that's a guy thing, maybe. I don't know, maybe, maybe the women would have read it quicker. I don't know. That's kind of how we are in life, isn't it? If we can figure it out ourselves, we'll just figure it out ourselves, and we'll take as much time as we think we can take, and sometimes we'll exhaust ourselves and probably take too much time doing it, never thinking we need to stop and see if the owner's manual might have something to say to us that might get us there a little more quickly than uh, just maybe walking blindly. Now, it's interesting uh, how, uh, you know, folks will say, I've, 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 I've heard this say, you know, they will go through and they will try to find things that, you know, the Bible isn't maybe an authority on. Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations. You remember the story of Joshua in Joshua 10 when the battle was going on? And in verse 12, there in the Bible, it says that in the middle of the battle, the sun did what? The sun stood still. And you'll have p- people that will look at that and say, there, there, see, the Bible is such an unscientific book because the sun doesn't, doesn't stop. The sun stood still. And the critics have for years laughed and mocked, and they've said, you know, see, 
how, how, how scientific is that? If there, if there was an unchanging relationship between the earth and the sun, what it meant was that the earth stood still. That's scientific, but the Bible is just totally unscientific. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you were there that day, it would look to you like the sun stood still. And the same critic who wants to disparage what the Bible says will be the first guy in the morning to bounce out of his bed, look out of his window, and say, what a beautiful sunrise it is today. Now, nobody runs up to him and says, hey, by the way, that's not a sunrise. Nobody wakes up and says, oh, what a lovely earth-revolving moment I'm experiencing here. People who live in Australia, for example, are said to live down under. Well, down under what? That's not any more down under than being here is being down under. We say, well, we searched the four corners of the earth. Well, what corners are there? The earth doesn't have four corners. There's some things we speak from our perspective that are not intended to be statements of the technical elements of scientific data. And then there's the record. I'll just give you one more. The book of 2 Kings chapter 18. You have Sennacherib who makes a transaction with Hezekiah and it says that he gave 30 talents of gold and 300 talents of silver which doesn't seem like any kind of an issue until archaeologists discovered the Assyrian records of the transaction between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. They discovered Sennacherib's own record, and in Sennacherib's record, he had 800 talents of silver instead of the 300 talents. And so the critics will say, you see, this is the kind of thing the Bible messes up on. It has errors in it. It's not careful about these numbers. But then once you do further archaeological study, you begin to find out that the standard of calculating gold uh, was not necessarily the same in Judea and Syria. But the standard of calculating silver as well was different. A Judean and Syrian talent were so different, it took 800 Syrian talents to equal 300 Hebrew talents. And that's exactly what the Bible said. So the Bible was speaking in Hebrew terms, not Assyrian terms. So an Assyrian document by Sennacherib would not necessarily corroborate without the numerical translation into how Hebrews transact money. Are you following me? I could go on and on and on until your eyes glaze back into your head. The Bible is is without error. It speaks to every area of life. And then finally, it's not just unique. It's not, it's not only, what did I say? <laughs> it's just for, it's universal. It's not just universal, but it's also useful. It's also useful. The scripture will make you complete or make you useful, Paul says, in four areas. And this is why it's an owner's menu. Number one is it will help you know objective truth. Life is not based solely on how you feel or how you think. There is an objective reality, and the Bible tells us what that objective reality is. It, it doesn't change. People can give you a feeling, and the Bible doesn't change because someone had a feeling. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, before this book, we could not know right from wrong. And that's our problem these days. We've compartmentalized God outside of our public concerns, and so we no longer know what's right or wrong. We have confused people who were trying to appease because we refuse to acknowledge there's a right and there's a wrong. But we have a Bible that tells us what this is right, this is wrong. Secondly, 
It's useful because it confronts sin or it confronts wrong living. You know, if you actually read your Bible, it may be that God would use it to convict you. And conviction is not a bad thing. In fact, conviction is really a normal thing, should be, because conviction is the mechanism God uses in order to indicate to us that we're moving into wrong territory or that we're in wrong territory. And the Bible confronts sin because sin alienates from God and it destroys, it ultimately destroys our life, our way of life, our peace, our joy. It may even take our very life. And so it confronts these things. That's not a bad thing. The wages of sin is death. Sin will always take you to a destructive place. So if you're being convicted over sin, don't be upset about the conviction. You ought to rejoice that God's speaking to you because he's keeping you from the cliff. That's a good thing. Letter C or number three is the Bible corrects our journey. The Bible charts much of the direction your life is to take. It tells us all sorts of things. It tells us, for example, uh, don't be yoked with unbelievers. I mean, it's just a simple thing, but before you yoke up with people that aren't of the same faith as you, you need to consider, is this really God to, to do this? Because the Bible says we really ought not yoke that way. And, and, and it helps us make decisions around the journey. A soft answer turns away wrath. So in other words, if somebody's screaming at you, it doesn't mean you get to scream back. Maybe if you brought it down. There's all sorts of things in the Bible that can help you in your journey. And then lastly, the Bible helps train us in right living. The Scripture teaches you how God empowers you to live. Now, let's boil this down to where you and I live, all right? It's going to be practical now. We all agree that the Bible is a unique, it's authoritative book. We agree with the apologetics of its defense, that it's God's written word to humanity. It addresses all of your life. The question now becomes simply this. I can give you all this wonderful apologetics. I can give you this wonderful uh, academic review or evaluation, but the question boils down to this. Are you just in it? Do you read it? Are you studying it? Are you applying it? Have you created a Bible reading you know, pattern for you this year. Maybe you need to purpose. It's only the the second Sunday of January of 2017. Maybe you could get you an app or something that could get you reading God's word so that this year could be the year you actually read through all of the Bible. Why don't you goal that and see what God may say and do in your life? Do you research it when you need to find answers? Do you parent by it? Are you married by it? Is your walk in your job and life directed by it? If you don't know, do you search it out, find the answer? I tell you, a wonderful thing is you can, you can put down any topic and then on Google and then just put scripture. And it'll flash up every scripture that addresses that particular question or topic. There is no reason that you and I cannot research and find out what the Bible has to say about what we're going through. Are you a person? of one book we can listen to the voices of radio and television but are you the person of one book do you have the bible memorized any of it memorized i'm challenging you don't don't beat yourself up i'm I'm, I'm not here to just club you i'm here to challenge you to say it's a new year a new start memorize some things get it the bible says of itself thy word have i hid in my heart that i might not sin against you 
There it is. Could you lead somebody to the Lord if you stumbled into some office somewhere and someone just came to you and said, help, I need to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Would you know what to say to them? Or would you know what verses maybe to share with them? What verses are you standing on when you're in adversity? Have you found any of those verses? Write them out. Put them on the refrigerator. Put them on the bathroom mirror. Are you a person of one book? You know, when Tracy's grandmother died, it was interesting. Her name was Mammy. And when she passed away, in fact, she said for her whole life that if she was ever put into a nursing home environment, she, I heard her say this on more than one occasion. She said, I won't last 30 days. She actually spoke really a word curse over her life because she said it all the time. I don't know if she believed anything else, but she believed that. And you know when she eventually had to be put and cared for in a nursing home environment that on the 30th day she passed away. That still makes us shake our heads. But when we found her, we found her just laying on her back peacefully in her bed and her Bible was on her chest. See, Mammy was a person of one book. And so, as we just wrap it up, I just want to ask you, will you make your Bible an important part of your spiritual walk this year? It's God's word to you. He breathed it to you. Amen. Will you stand with me, please?